This is Improvised Radio Theatre with Dice, with me, Michael Keel, and me, Roger Bell-West. This month we'll be doing another epic exploration of the one of the worlds and one of the game systems that um, has been immensely successful over the years, um, and especially is especially dear to my particular heart. We'll be talking about RuneQuest and Loran. We're also going to be talking to... Dean Englehart, who has just released a Lovecraftian investigative game. We'll be asking him why. And other and, things. And other things. And uh, I would like to thank people who've dropped a bit of money in our tip jar. Uh, John Hagen, Glenn Lewis, Robert Wolf. thank you very much. This does encourage us to uh, keep making the show. Imagine that I'm juggling and tap dancing in celebration your donations. If you listen very carefully you can you can hear the tappity tappity. Uh, if you would like to join this august bunch, uh, paypal.me slash rogerbw and let me know what it's for. friends from the bundle of holding um, who uh, let us know what they're having and uh, let us preview it um, there is an offer for the new version of Fiasco which I think we mentioned a while back this is the card based uh, version uh, which comes in a box and all the supplements for it which haven't um, seen wide distribution Is I think is that fair? I haven't seen it seen yeah well, I mean, I think one could argue that the old that it was always a card-based game. It's just in the old days you were expected to write down stuff on index cards, yeah, or, or post-it notes. And because uh, because you now have just the printed cards to work with, the number of combinations, the number of elements you can do in any particular setup is reduced. Now that may not be a problem. I, I suspect they've learned that most people only play a particular setting once or twice anyway. So yeah, fair enough. But uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't feel as enthusiastic for the new version. It feels a bit um, her party game mm. rather, rather than something that leads to serious role-playing. But probably I'm being harsh and I certainly haven't had the ch- chance to play it. However, if you want to get hold of the new version, um, then the bundle of holding has it. Uh, let's have a look. Until, uh, until 9th of March. Until the 9th of March, which is, oh, eons in the future. Time <laughs> flies by fast these days. Last month we talked about Traveller. Uh, in particular, the most recent version of it. And so we thought we'd do it again with a game that's got even more history. Uh, not by very much, actually. Uh, oh, well, sort of, sort of there's perhaps more intense history than, than travel. There was a lot more shouting involved. RuneQuest. Yeah, RuneQuest. Uh, <laughs> with with, with okay. multiple companies, multiple people, um, lots of stories that I'm sure will never come out. It's a, it, It's... 
it's a game that means a lot to me in the in the terms that our, our friends at the Grognard Files have borrowed. It's probably my always game, or at least it it, it this and GURPS are uh, the contenders for my everything game. The thing that um, the game that means the most to me. I picked it up. I picked it up in 1979, that which would have been the early days of the second edition. And it turned me away from Dungeons and Dragons, and I, I, I sold off the uh, the, the GM's uh, book and, and player's handbook that mm -hmm. I I picked up um, that year at the World Science Fiction Convention in Brighton, and I never turned back to it. And it's had an enormous influence over the years. It has uh, one major descendant, uh, Call of Cthulhu, that is more um, more popular than the, the original game is, and has an, had an enormous effect, I, I would say, on the history of the hobby. Um, so I think we probably ought to start by talking about its history, which starts before... I, I came across it and got all enthusiastic. Yeah, well, let, let's first of all say that the history of RuneQuest is also the history of Glorantha, the world it's set in. They, they have oh. been versions that had just one thing or the other, but really they've always been at least a bit intertangled. Well, yeah, look, i I, I got to say that, that, that yes and no. Um, <laughs> RuneQuest is a, far, is a better general, a generic engine. Um, than uh, uh, than is actually needed for uh, for Glorantha and can be quite easily um, made into something that will serve different ends than um, yeah. than, than the, the realization of Glorantha. But well, Glorantha has, has always been one of its big setting points. So if we're going to talk about Glorantha as a start point, then In we 1975. need to talk about Greg Stafford. Um, White Bear, Red Moon. White Bear, Red Moon. Greg had um, first I, ha, has been had been, according to his own account, always a fanatic about uh, mythology and epic and heroic stories, and uh, ate up a whole lot of it whilst he was at uni at college. Um, he also ate up all of Joseph Campbell's um, Hero's Journey. Stuff about which I, having having forced myself to read through it, I'm less enthusiastic. Um, it, it, and uh, if you really want well, something, yes, to if, if you take a distinctive story and remove everything that's distinctive, what you have left is a generic story. Gosh. Yeah, well, and if you really want a thoroughgoing um, uh, deconstruction and and devastating criticism of uh, Joseph Campbell. Then listen to Ken Height, um, uh, who, uh, uh, who who says some very unflattering things about Joseph Campbell, his uh, his scholarship, and his politics. But that's by the by. Greg was started at at college, writing stories about a place, a world called Glorantha. Oddly enough, he started writing um, in part of Glorantha uh, the. Uh, Genetella North West, um, which uh, was part of the chivalrous lands, the west western side of of Glorantha, and a chap called Prince Snowdal. And the games that he released later didn't come around to, 
saying anything about that part of the world until, oh, much, much, much later. But anyway, uh, I mean, th- th- this is essentially a war game. It's a fantasy war game. We're talking about White Bear Red Moon yeah. here. Yes, it is. And it's not where he had, he had previously written. It's about the central part and about the fight between an empire and the people there trying to colonise, take over, destroy. This is heroic um, heroic resistance to the uh, to to the tyrant stuff, uh, which is so uh, so much part of uh, lots of people's uh, mythical DNA. Yeah, and and it is basically a hex encounter war game. It, it is a very odd hex encounter war game in which some of the all right, all of the uh, of the counters, except for a few of the uh, lunar ones, are weird and wonderful and magical and god blasted, and um, have their own deep history and uh, and uh, mythology baked uh, baked into them. There's there's enough material here to explore in a thousand uh, role playing sessions. And actually, people wanted to do that when yeah, the uh, Greg Kostikin commented that the rule book, uh, while quite short, gave you a major insight into the religions, governments, of, and ideologies of yes. whole peoples. So, uh, that, so, so th- let's just say this was published by Chaosium. Greg had tried to get it published by by established companies, and for various reasons, it didn't happen. Uh, so he started. I believe it was the Chaosium in 1974, and then this came out in 75. Probably yeah, the first one. He, he, he was publishing this. He was publishing uh, board games about King Arthur, about um, about a post-Holocaust uh, um, America, which had turned into an inland sea. He was publishing um, supplements to uh, the growing um, D&D hobby, um and including all the world's monsters and he and people came to him and said look can we try and make a role playing game out of your for your out of your setting for white bear red moon and he said sure but i don't really like the way dnd does it could you try to do something different this, these are the things that i think should be different about it. Enter and, Steve Perrin. I know, no. Enter <laughs> two, other pe- two other groups of people who give it a try <laughs> and, and give it give it the old college try, but they're still stuck in the, in the D&D uh, mindset. And then, then enter Steve Perrin. Who, who has, in 76, been fan-publishing what are known as the Perrin Conventions, which is basically an alternate combat system for D&D. Yeah. And he was... Um, at least halfway out of the of the D and D mindset at that point, and he said, "Let me have a try." He gathered a group of people uh, together. It's not at all clear. There are a few accounts of who 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 came up with what and the stages of it being developed. But what came out and was published in the end in a, in a very limited uh, edition, which was uh, RuneQuest Edition One. Mm-hmm. Um, and was released was released at a convention and sold out and proved very popular and a revised and revamped uh, version um, was published very shortly thereafter 
you can now get hold of uh, a restored uh, PDF of the first edition and comparing it with what with the second, there isn't a huge amount of difference between them. It's a clean-up job mm-hmm. rather than um, a, a major rewrite. So that set the second edition, the clean-up job, was uh, what I came across and what was available for lots of years until it fell into the lap of Avalon Hill, which we'll come to. And what was it? Ah, uh, it well, was... Years. <laughs> I tell you what... They, they what, were five very important years in, in our role-playing lives. <laughs> it seemed like an eternity. Yeah. All right, all right. Be 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 precise. I was I was w- working my way into poetry then. Um, and what struck me then, what appealed to me then, was it was a solution. To, I saw it as a solution, but it wasn't a perfect one to all the things I had been finding wrong and restricting in Dungeons and Dragons and the systems that imitated it. I had come to hate experience points. Mm-hmm and uh, class, classes and levels i had come to i had come to hate the fact that the monsters and the uh, and the player characters weren't in the same universe they weren't operating on the same principles mostly mm-hmm. um and uh, because uh, something is is designated a barbarian uh, or a, a a a randomly encountered swordsman and is on the other side of the fence. Suddenly, it makes a huge difference. And the fact that you couldn't you couldn't get to play uh, anything much other than a human, an elf, or a dwarf. Oh yeah, and a halfling. You could play a halfling, and they didn't work quite the same as each other either. What I found in in RuneQuest was a game system as a system, as a unified thing uh, that worked terribly well. There were other innovations in it too. It, it gets rid of um, it gets rid of a rolling for initiative because there's a mechanism, a deterministic mechanism, I suppose we'd say, um, to say that you've got uh, uh, that you've got uh, you're this this big, you're this dexterous, Got a weapon that reaches this far, and that's the point in the round that you you act, and you can do do your main combat thing. And here's rules for doing other things in the round, and it just made sense. And the, but the thing that most appealed to my heart is that it it had an advancement system that didn't require the GM to say, well, I think, you know, on the whole, you've all earned about, oh, 500 experience points between you, so let's divide it this way. No, I I, I hated that. No, it just encourages you to carry a golf bag of weapons. Well, no, honestly. <laughs> uh, a main weapon and a backup is is here. It's all, I, I will admit that in no version of RuneQuest, of the encumbrance rules were, worked terribly well, but uh, the, the basic problem is all right. It's, as I see it, its advancement is intrinsically linked to the length of an adventure. Because when when you use a thing successfully uh, in some iterations in a stressful situation, but basically when you make a skill roll with some restrictions, you yeah. get a tick. You can have only one tick. 
at some point when an adventure is over or you have a time to rest or whatever, you know, not not merely camping for the night, but actually stopping and thinking about stuff, you can resolve those ticks and you, your skills may go up. But because you know, it, the moment an adventure gets to be longer than a f- fairly minimal amount, you start thinking, well, I've got the ticks. Why can't I just stop now and, and you know, any, any, anything I learn from here on is wasted. So you start diversifying. I, all I can say is I, ne- I never saw this as a phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Maybe I was better at pacing the, the break times and giving them uh, chances to um, get, get out um, of immediate danger and reflect upon what they had learned on a regular basis. That has its own problems because it accelerates the speed with which the characters become parts of the more exalted classes, which aren't classes but are levels, which aren't levels of rune lords and rune priests and what have you. But on the whole, it was so much better than the... It has its own restrictions, Mm -hmm. but it was so much better than um, the restrictions that were placed on you by D&D that I, I, as I say, I sold off my, uh, my... uh, GM's guide and uh, and player's handbook and uh, and uh, never look back from there. So moving on a bit in the history, oh, unless you yeah. want to talk more about RQ2, I mean it was clearly very influential. It, it was very influ- influential, and uh, there, there is a dangerous nostalgia towards it in some people of my generation. But um, we we'll, may come back to that later. Um, it it oh, was. As role-playing games go, I mean, people argue about this versus Traveller as the first skill-based game. Traveller had skills before this, but RuneQuest didn't say you were in this thing, so you learned this skill. It said you can learn any skill you like. Mm-hmm. Um, it was certainly w- one of the early detailed fantasy worlds. Empire of the Petal Throne is probably earlier. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, it took religion seriously. Yes, it took religion, religion and, is part of your life. It's not just a thing that gets you spells. No, and and it's um, it has to be it has to be role played heavily by the by the GM. The GM has to be aware of the implications that he's standing in for the gods and the things that the gods expect of the different the different gods expect of their of their followers. Mm. But that, to be honest, is a pleasure for the GM rather than a heavy burden. At least I think mm. it is. So, uh, 1980, uh, they, they, the Chaosium people strip back uh, the RuneQuest rule set to make basic role-playing. Yeah. Um, they, they were busy um, trying all the things that this particular model could also do. We've mentioned Call of Cthulhu, and if well, we yeah, ever do, the, the, if we it, ever do a review of that, then it's going to be even longer than this one because yeah, every you, RPG that Chaosium published, except for one, used some variant of the BRP system. In some cases, quite variant, but still derived from it. Hmm. Which is the one you're thinking of that wasn't um, Prince Valiant? Yeah. Oh yes, Prince Valiant. <laughs> even I haven't played that one. Uh, anyway, it's a wonderful idea, but no. But so anyway, basic role playing, and it strips out the magic because if if you're going to have a new world for it, you're probably going to have your own magic system. It strips out. I think it strips out strike ranks. I don't remember. Anyway, it it, it is a much cut down system, and a lot yeah. of people use it for a lot of things. 
Um, and then things bumble along for a bit and Call of Cthulhu happens. And various other things like Worlds of Wonder and Superworld that are influential on people who are starting to game about then, but uh, didn't form a particular part of my life. Yeah, I, I things like... Uh, they were very good products, by uh, by and large. Uh, the, perhaps the best of them being Ring, Ring World and Elf World. Um, but they they had a limited fan base, and they didn't go beyond one or two. Um, there were also the Michael Moorcock adaptations, mm-hmm. Stormbringer uh, eighty one, which were a little which were a little more uh, which were a little more successful, but though not as much as Call of Cthulhu. Uh, basically, I don't think KOCM as a company could support much more um, than the two big games, RuneQuest and Call of Cthulhu, and a few other odds and sods if they could find uh, um, an enthusiast or a bunch of enthusiasts to uh, make that project their own. Yeah, and their, their basic business model appeared to be uh, still in the we will sell a new game as opposed to we will sell a supplement to an old game, which is what yeah. the business model most companies were using at the time, to be fair. Yeah. Um, I, I'm i not sure it was it was ever that viable um, a, a system. Well, but... they were a war game publisher because everybody had been war game publishers, and that was what you did yeah. with a war game. You sold a new war game. But you got you cannot say the same for RuneQuest itself. I mean, this period is something of the is is the first golden age for RuneQuest, and they are servicing it servicing RuneQuest two with some of the best supplements that I think I saw. Cults I can of Prax, remember. Cults of Terror. Yeah, Troll Pack, Cults of, mm. Cults of Cults of Prax to start with, which is all about providing the religious background for the uh, uh for uh for for Glorantha and uh, and a setting cults of terror the parvis books um the uh, uh uh griffin griffin mountain which is a big um sandbox box setting a, a primitive area even more primitive than uh dragon pass to to the north of prax uh and lots and lots and lots of stuff. Uh, but it seemed to be coming to a point at which this was not that was not sustainable for them. I'm not quite clear in my own mind why. And then it got complicated. Uh, yeah. Because in 1984, uh, RuneQuest 3 came out. Uh, and in order to basically get better distribution and marketing than they could manage themselves, Calcium made a deal with Avalon Hill to do the publication. And this got yeah. complicated. Avalon yeah. Hill got the RuneQuest trademark. Uh, any Glorantha-related content needed Chaosium's approval. And they also had... They retained the copyright of the rules text, but I think uh, Avalon Hill got to rewrite it a bit. And therefore, Avalon Hill basically said, right... This is RuneQuest 3. Uh, we, we can call it RuneQuest because we've got the trademark. But it is not set in Glorantha. It is called, it is in Mythic Europe. Well, hang on. No, and, no, and there was a Glorantha it. booklet. Yeah. But well, the, I, I, the, I think you're, I think you're, you're overstating stating the case. I think, I, I think <laughs> to be fair, 
I don't think either either side, either Avalon Hill or KFC, knew what they were getting into. Oh, almost certainly. Uh, um, Avalon I mean, Hill were again a big war game publisher who didn't really done a have significant role playing, playing presence and wanted an RPG. Yeah, they'd done. A, I, I, they'd done. I think one or, or two attempts at a role playing game, which hadn't exactly flown, and they uh, and and Chaosium thought that they could get get their game and their world out there um, with their help and ah, there were issues numerous issues mostly on, on the uh, Acacian's issue with um, Avalon Hill was the quality and cost of what they were putting out yeah uh, the- and particularly in the UK until Games Workshop did a deal with Avalon Hill uh, to do local print, uh, local UK edition. It was famously the Millionaire's edition of RuneQuest. And oh, a, lo- a lot of gamers I knew at the time were sticking with RQ2 because 3 was simply not affordable. Yeah, um, uh, but but 2 was no longer supported. Mm-hmm. The, and, and to it be wasn't, fair, I, I mean, they're different, but they're not very different. Th- all right, th- let, let, let me talk about the difference for a moment. <laughs> um, the difference is that he... Maybe uh, I think it was what Chaosium wanted to do, but it became a bit more detailed, a bit more granular, and a bit more complicated. Um, and it, it it stuck on systems su- uh, such as um, fatigue and uh, uh, the fatigue encumbrance uh, uh, system and the sorcery <laughs> set. Oh Lord, sorcery. There, there is okay. I've I've said this before about dice mechanics. If you do not understand how exponential growth works, you should mm. not write a system that uses exponential growth. Yeah. Well, my problem was that in theory, Plus one equals times two. Yay! In theory, um, a, a a sorcerer character would become uh, would become obscenely powerful very very quickly. Mm-hmm. Practice. The only sorcerer I ever played remained piddling about with twenty or thirty percent chance of casting his best spells, and incapable of becoming more than a snotty apprentice. Okay, they, and, they were the favourites among the Munchkins I knew. Well, the Munchkins I knew probably cheated. <laughs> Not obviously. Uh, it it was a it was was a system that hadn't been tested, that hadn't been thought through for its implications, and. Got stuck in. I will say oddly that Greg Stafford counted himself as a shaman his entire life, and was serious about his shamanic uh, shamanic practices. But uh, the 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 system that always remained the least detailed until I think the current edition of RuneQuest came out was the shamanic magic system. Mm-hmm. Um, the 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 sorcerers had a certain reality to them. And the gods were very, very well realised, and and the highlight of it. But uh, but for some reason, shamanism always felt a little bit um, flat to me. Maybe because Greg didn't see how he could communicate that religious experience. But mm. I don't know. Anyway, and to to be fair, also uh, Greg is primarily at this point writing Glorantha background rather than mechanics. I mean, that was always, yeah. always the I, I think I'm, not, I'm not saying he had no mechanical influence, but that wasn't his main job. 
No, I think that's probably true for the rest of his life. There is except stuff... Laser Pendragon. Okay, well, Pendragon. We're not going to bring Pendragon. Well, into we, this. this is actually the point to mention it uh, because the okay. year after Inquest Three comes out, nineteen eighty-five, uh, Greg gets hacked off with. Uh, Avalon Hill not putting in the stuff he wanted to put into RuneQuest 3 about family background and clan and so on, and he writes Pendragon largely around that material. All, all that stuff about the winter phase was originally intended for RuneQuest. All, all that, you know, carrying on your family thing. Yeah. And we'll come back to that because it has finally made it back into RuneQuest. Uh, that, that's all I really want to say about Pendragon, but it, but that that was definitely at the time described yeah. as the game that the thing the stuff that Greg had wanted to put into RuneQuest. There was a fan published game called Pendragon Pass, um, <laughs> which uh, which tried to to hybridise the the two systems with some success. Yeah, I but, mean uh, Pendragon certainly wears its BRP influence, even if it is in practice a bit different. Yeah. Uh, it's in practice very different. And All then, right. for for me at least, there was a bit bit of a long gap. Um, there was RuneQuest stuff coming out, uh, some of which was published, I think, actually by Chaosium, some of which by Avalon Hill. Um, some of it was Glorantha, some of it wasn't. Mm. And it, it all seemed to be fading a lot. Uh, it, yeah, the the stuff the stuff in that first phase of the Avalon Hill partnership. Was either um, either either non-Glorantham settings that Avalon Hill had developed, which were fairly abysmal, or reworkings sometimes outside of Glorantham or of and sometimes in of earlier uh, of earlier RuneQuest two publications. Trollpack got a Rune, uh, got a RuneQuest three version. Which was virtually identical, um, except for mechanics, with the RuneQuest Two mm. and and disasters like what was it called, Daughters of Darkness? Uh, there was a there was a fashion at certain RuneQuest Glorantha-cons um, uh, shortly thereafter for burning some of the uh, uh, some of the uh, Avalon Hill publications, which I thought was in very bad taste, boys. I just want you to know that. And then some after after lots of of manky stuff that was produced, somebody at Avalon Hill um, had a had a stroke of genius, or maybe it was Cozy, I don't know, and brought Ken Rolston in to um, be in charge of Avalon Hill producing some decent Glorantham material. <laughs> And what was followed was called the RuneQuest Renaissance and produced wonderful material. River of Cradles, um, Sun County. Uh, uh, yeah, Shadow so Chaosium and... had actually stopped publishing material for RuneQuest at all in 89. And then, then Avalon Hill managed to get Ralston in, in 92. Ralston had been working for Chaosium before that. And, and that's... At least, at least sometimes. And that actually had um, decent production and art values, uh, decent um, uh, imagine, imagination and decent scenarios. It, it was a very, very enjoyable period. Uh, I had in, I had immense fun anyway. Um, and, uh, and it was also the period that uh, the UK and other parts of the world, but especially as far as I was concerned, the UK, 
ran some very good Glorantha-based uh, conventions, which are still uh, still have descendants in the convulsion uh, uh, camp uh, convulsion convention series running out of of, of Leicester. And of course, Avalon Hill uh, sacked him in '94. Uh, <laughs> all right, all right. It was a very brief <laughs> in, in the background. So um, the, obviously. A thing that Avalon Hill is going to want to do because you know it's now the nineties. The, the last new edition was nineteen eighty four. Uh, they want they want to think about a new edition. So there are um, there is a RuneQuest Adventures in Glorantha, which it was RuneQuest four. Which yeah. yeah, this was the first attempt at RuneQuest four. I think this is Giovanna Mitch McLoin and Fink. There's there's an unofficial leaked version which I have. Yeah, um, but Snaff had refused permission for them to do that. Let's pause for a moment and say... Because Stafford owned Glorantha, essentially. Well, Stafford owned Glorantha. Um, the the RuneQuest Adventures in Glorantha was um, a further war gamification, a further accrual of new new and denser um, mechanics. There were were action points mechanics, I seem to recall. Um, Are effectively action points, and you have this silly end-of-round notion which doesn't represent anything uh i i, I was used to uh, to, to <laughs> strike cranks all right uh, but but it was it, it, it was a an increased complication of of the system and greg revolted i think the the fact uh, the unfortunate things that happened to to one of the developers further um uh got involved in in, in uh, further managed to 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 kill kill that particular project. At uh, which but, point... but because of the complicated split rights, yeah, uh, Greg and Chaosium can refuse permission for this to be a Glorantha game, but Avalon Hill can still work on a a role playing game to be called RuneQuest. So they abandoned that project, started a new project with different designers of Rune called RuneQuest Slayers. Which was, excuse me, can we just uh, reflect, uh, can we just say briefly that this was deeply appalling and it illustrated that Avalon Hill did not have a single fucking clue. And then in 1998, Hasbro buys Avalon Hill and cancels the thing. Uh, the copyright eventually gets back to the, the writers. They, they eventually release that free as Rune Slayers, so if you want to go and have a look at it, you can. I am not a masochist, despite the evidence. Uh Meanwhile, uh, so yeah, th- this is all starting to hot up a bit um, because there also, there's also uh, a, a name we'll come back to um, the Maints Index to Glorantha collecting guide, which Rick, yeah. Rick Maints uh, puts together as part of the Reaching Moon Megacorp, which is a fan project. And that's how okay, now. yeah, uh, that we should have mentioned the the the, the Fanish publications, which are very important for the uh, for the uh, Runequest uh, re- Renaissance. Of the nineties, mm-hmm. okay. So, why is is the Mines Index important? Well, he, this is the first time we hear of him. He he is a fan working for this larger fanish project. Uh, Ninety eight, the Mythos collectible card game, which is a complete and dismal failure, coming as it does in the wake of Magic, and you know people are playing Magic and trying to say you should you should be playing this collectible card game, not that one. Doesn't work. There were a large number of people who wanted to cash in on yep. collectible and cards. Some were more successful than others. Almost all of them made a loss. 
and Chaosium was one of the legendary disasters. Uh, So Greg and Sandy left Chaosium at that point. uh, And I think Isiris Inc. technically existed before that, but it certainly existed after this. And that was the company, which is basically Greg and Sandy's thing, uh, which holds the Glorantha rights. Okay. So so RuneQuest as a concept is now split between at least three companies. Okay, this is... This is the point at which Greg Hans decides he doesn't like uh, exploring Glorantha with RuneQuest and starts the project which ends up as Hero Quest. And I propose we do not go down that particular well, rabbit hole. Well, m- mentioning it in passing just to keep the chronology straight. Okay. Uh, yeah, so, but... yeah, so 99, um, the Reaching Moon Megacorp people are burned out, but Rick Mates isn't. Um, so he forms with Colin Phillips Moon Design, and their their original purpose. This, this is a he, he's an expat American. This is basically a British organisation at first, mm. um, and what what they're aiming to do is negotiate with Chaosium, buy up the rights to RuneQuest material that Chaosium has no interest in keeping in print and reprinting it in you know, cheap yeah, bulk editions. A, a noble and 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 vital. Thing yeah. to keep in. There's, are they still keeping in print things like um, Griffin Mountain and the and the that, uh, the, the good RuneQuest Two material? I'm not sure if it's it's still a project of theirs, but oh, it's editions now. Editions of the um, are uh, are slightly cleaned up and com- uh, compiled editions of the uh, Parvis material and. Uh, uh, yeah, and Classics was was the line name they used yeah. for that, and uh, and it was extremely valuable, especially for people who didn't have the chance to acquire and and play into into uh, into uselessness uh, the originals as I have. Yeah. So in two thousand, Hero Wars comes out as the Robin Laws thing. That's the one that will become other names later on. Yeah. Um, in 2003, Isiris buys the RuneQuest trademark from Hasbro, uh, which I think is where Hasbro leaves the story. Yeah. And they can therefore retitle Hero Wars as Hero Quest. Or other okay. Than, yeah. No, hang on. Uh, the, uh, Hasbro had, picked, had had acquired Avalon Hill. Yes, by, yes. Yeah, that, that, yeah. yeah that, was when, that was when RuneQuest 4 got cancelled. Yeah. Uh, so, there's that. But let, let, let's just remember that the latest official... Um, BRP type RuneQuest game is still uh, RuneQuest three from nineteen eighty four. At, at this point, uh, getting on for twenty years later. Yeah, uh, hang on. All right, so I think we should j- j- juggle quickly towards the involve how m- m- mongoose became. Yeah, well, they, they happen next. Um, Two thousand and six, uh, we get mongoose RuneQuest, which is essentially reverse engineered from RuneQuest two using that provision that. The form of words can be copyrighted, but game mechanics per se cannot. So if you rewrite uh, that, it in your own words... Yeah, that may have been what they intended to do. But the mishmash they produced as their own RuneQuest system were, did not remind me of RuneQuest 2 mm. all that strongly. Well, they, they, well they, they looked at various things and, and picked what they liked, and Matthew Sprange was the team leader on that. Uh, and they they reduced they released this as OGL, which has implications for later on when people get sue happy. Mm. Um, Two thousand eight, uh, Chaosium re- released the BRP Gold Book, which is basically, if you want to build your own setting off BRP, here is a you know four hundred plus page 
all the crap you can add to BRP. Yeah, everything it's a, it's a simple we have, system. Everything what we ever wrote for BRP. Uh, 2009, uh, Moon Design publishes a second edition of Hero Quest. Yeah, I, I yeah, the the Hero Quest is a is a side is a side issue to the, to this story, yeah, but 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 that's what Moon Design are doing, and Moon Design are going to matter. Okay. Um, 2010, Mongoose RuneQuest second edition. That was nearer. Um, uh, that that is very much um, not not quite written from scratch, but very much we we are we are taking this stuff as an influence, and we are writing our own game, which is very heavily influenced by it. Okay, let me let me pause this. This is Pete Nash and Lawrence Whitaker. I just get that. Yeah, thing. this is this is important because it does actually have offspring and does actually have legs. Mm-hmm. I didn't like it and I didn't use it, but um, they produced a coherent system and they produced new Glorantham material for the set in the second age rather than the third age, which everything virtually everything had been for uh, before. And there is there are some valuable. Setting related stuff, um, which I don't believe are canon anymore, for our, but that but are useful as ideas minds for stuff about the Drustellan and um, Empire, Empire and the Empire of the Worms friends, which were the two big magical and national superpowers of that time mm-hmm. period. So, so, so I don't think it was an entire waste, and from those ashes. This has has been out for less than a year uh, when uh, Isaris and Mongoose split up for reasons never to be explained. Um, So all all this RuneQuest branded stuff they've printed becomes unsaleable and they they redo it as Legend and again put it under OGL. Legend... uh, I'm not quite clear of of uh, of the sequence here. But legend still has some existence, or did last time I looked, and also Mithras. Uh, uh, well, that, yeah, that. Um, all right, all right. You've got a clearer idea. You've done the research. Uh, well, yeah, Myth- Mithras. Actually, um, yeah, um, that that's a bit later because that that's because what what happens next is. So, Mongoose RuneQuest Two has had the has had the Glorantha carved out of it again and become legend. And the people who wrote Mongoose RuneQuest Two make a new deal with the Saris to turn Mongoose RuneQuest Two into official RuneQuest Six, yes. which will have no Gloranthan content except for the runes. Um, a decision that's makes marketing sense but nothing else whatsoever. <laughs> so that's so that's 2012 uh, uh 2013 uh greg sells is and so and basically all the remaining rights the glorantha stuff the runequest stuff the hero quest trademark everything is now under the moon design umbrella except for what chaosium still hold uh-huh and then in 2015 chaosium uh functionally goes bankrupt uh, because, uh, it was a Kickstarter. Which one? Was uh, it? it was the Horror on the Orient Express Second Edition Kickstarter, uh, where they did the thing that no Kickstarter does since, which is charge shipping at the time of pledge, rather than at the time of shipping. 
and and that's causing um, a, a problem when you discover that shipping uh, uh, shipping costs only go up and never go down. Also, that um, they they charged this shipping cost on the basis of what they thought a pledge was going to look like. And they had so many stretch goals and extras and things that a pledge looked a lot bigger than that when it came time to ship it. Oh, boy. Um, so they, they basically ran out of money. Um, so Stafford and Peterson and Moon Design collude on this. And essentially Stafford and Peterson get some authority within Moon Design, though they don't use much of it. Um, and Moon Design now buys and trades as Chaosium. And all, all the RuneQuest rights are basically now back in one organisation. Uh, hey. Except for the name RuneQuest that, that uh, the design mechanism has been publishing, the RuneQuest 6, which they take back the next year. And that's when RuneQuest 6 turns into Mithras. Okay, let us say at this point, Arthur Aquibali to Mithras, because they're going to go off and continue publishing stuff. Yeah. Um, there is, uh, they're, they're, they're like Leoness and, uh, and uh, Mythic Constantinople and Mythic Britain, and uh, I don't know what else because I haven't looked at their catalogue recently. But they are definitely continuing to be um, a, a publishing concern and continuing to use um, the child of the child of the child of the illegitimate offspring of, uh, of the original RuneQuest. Yeah, so uh, the, 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 well, the, the thing that Moon Design spin up immediately, um, because it's a thing they can do with, with little, little um, editorial effort on their part, is publish a whole bunch of RuneQuest Classics stuff. Um, because, you know, they, they have all the rights back together. Yeah. So they did a hardcover reprint of, of RuneQuest 2 from 1979 and various of its supplements. Because that, that was clearly. A thing that they had, they had all the rights to. No, no question of Avalon Hill or Asbro having any remnant anything in there. Uh, so, then in 2018, they produce RuneQuest role playing in Glorantha, which is the thing we're actually here to talk about. Uh, we've, we've been here a while. Well, oh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> got that. Uh, okay, so, but this is this is the current version, and is the version I'm currently. Yeah, so, so this, this does have involvement. Published for it. This does have some involvement for, from both Greg and Steve, though it's not clear how much. Um, it is primarily derived from RuneQuest Two, um, but it it is derived from. It is not, you know, just. just yeah, you were talking on. about the stuff that uh, Greg wanted to put into uh, RuneQuest Two. Yeah, and and, and this is where it comes back. This is the point. At which he, at which it is brought back in for him. It's not clear whether this is by his own hand or by the hand of his heirs. It certainly looks a lot like the stuff you've got in, for example, the Great Trend Dragon campaign, which we talked about yeah. in previous episodes, it, it is, where you get your grandfather's family history and your father's family history, and, that, and then yours. Okay, that they have divided up the Glorantan history into pre. Um, Pre-Dragon Rise and post-Dragon Rise, all the stuff that was published before this stage was about the um, the stage where the, the Lunars were triumphant when they were pushing back the other cultures and taking control of everything. And this and this now steps over the material that they that they depicted in here in the 
hero quest campaigns of the great winter and the struggle against the lunars that try that climaxes in uh, the raising of one of the sleeping dragons of dragon pass that come out and devour the new lunar temple and all the lunar armies and start the liberation of Sartar and Prax. As this, always gets mentioned, the Dragon Kill Wars are not known for what happened to the dragons. The Dragon Kill Wars are, yeah, I, all right, it, it is a bit of, it's not desperately relevant, Roger, for the storyline. Runequest dragons are a bit special. Runequest dragons are as big as mountains and terrifying. Mm-hmm. Uh, having one uh, appear in the middle of dedicating your temper ruins your entire day. The, uh, that, but but now we're in a new age, the age of the rise of Prince Argraf, uh, and the, and the start of the events of uh, White Bear, Red Moon, and the tone of the thing is changing and becoming. Um, it's going to be very interesting from a Glaranthan geek's point of view what <laughs> they choose to do with the official storyline, especially as my own campaign has already diverted from the original storyline. but uh, Also, of course, Greg dies in 2018. Um, Steve, Steve dies in, I think, last year. Last year. he and he, his, his wife went slightly before him. Um, we haven't mentioned the fact that uh, he was an SCA, uh, a Society for Creative Anachronism member way, way back. And that the, what he thought he learnt or felt he learnt about um, weird I, stuff that has happened to me on, on, on the brackets fake battlefield may, certainly yeah. made it into the fumble tables of RuneQuest well yeah the, the the things that can go wrong with armor straps that he doesn't know about is not worth knowing <laughs> um, but the uh, and and, and that it gives a certain realism of a certain sort to, uh, to it it's not the same realism as um uh, Gerps is is, is striving for, but it's it, it's a huge step forward from uh, from D and D's idea of realism, which isn't. Mm. Well, it's, uh, it's much more abstracted. In any case, hang on. Are we talking saying that D and D is more extra- abstracted? Yes. Or, yes. That's I what mean, I um, the, the the justification for D and D's one minute combat round was that you are dodging back and forth and you each have a bunch of chances to hit each other and the one you roll for is the one that might actually work. Whereas uh, in RuneQuest, uh, it's a 12-second combat round, more or less, and you each time you get a chance to hit somebody, that's a chance you roll for. And the uh, the, the worst bit of abstraction that it got rid of was the hit points. Which there's still something called hit points in uh, in RuneQuest, but it's on such a different scale. And the fact that you can take a one-point blow to your right arm and um, enough of them make it, make a difference and, and even contribute to, to your death. And the, the, the specific effects of um, body locations was something very new Yeah, um, back in the day. To, to over-summarise, perhaps, um, each, each of your, I think it's six... Seven locations has a number of hit points. Chest, abdomen. Uh, I think it's. I think that makes it seven. With the yeah, uh, and if if you run out of hit points in that location, then it is useless. Your arm is broken. 
um, your guts are spilling out, whatever. And depending on which location it is, the actual effects of this will vary. And there is a a a, a rendered useless uh, uh, threshold of twice the number of hit points because you can go negative. And I, I think in the latest version, there, for some locations, there's a three times if if twice hasn't killed you. Uh, but yeah. I, th- I think that the thing that we get out of this history, or at least that I get, is that there are RuneQuest-like systems without Glaranthan content. Yeah. Um, there are Glaranthan... Ga- well, there is HeroQuest, in some versions of it, Hero Wars, yeah. uh, which are Glaranthan content without RuneQuest-like systems, but mostly they go together. And certainly, I mean, the, asking the standard why not run this in GURPS, in particular the magic is important. Um the way pretty much everybody has magic was very unusual when it came out and still yeah. is fairly. Um, and the distinction between the, the everyday, uh, what was originally battle magic and got later known as spirit magic, uh, which practically everybody has one or two spells of this sort. Yeah. Uh, and the rune magic, which is a lot more beefy, but you have to be part of a cult and get get it, if in essence, from your god. Yeah, the, the 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 one of the things that has improved um, in the new version is the realization of the um, of the uh, of the magic systems. The the progress to becoming a, a rune level, a rune priest, or a rune lord is making a lot more sense as you build up a pool of already sacrificed magic to your god. And when it reaches a certain point, you can you can apply to become one of the rune levels. But you don't normally lose those points by by u- using when you're only an initiate, and that has made it has increased the power level of the game. But it has made it make more sense. And the life of the shaman, the user of spirit magic, the pro- the professional powerful users of spirit magic, has become a lot more um, understandable and relatable and capable of being made um, of dramatic interest mm. um, to uh, in, in this version. I cannot, however, say that the sorcery, which is still in there, is an improvement because <laughs> I do not the fuck understand it. It still doubles for plus one. It is therefore exploitable. I, I just <laughs> it, haven't had time to exploit it yet. Uh, I, I can't figure... When you figure it out, Roger... Because Roger has a project. Tell them what your project is, Roger. Uh, well, I've, I think I've mentioned before, I, I, I promised to Watson Hall that I would run a an all-duck RuneQuest game. Because, yeah, we should talk about the ducks. We really should. All right, we should. All right, because it's going to come around. Because somebody listening to this has already said to, to themselves snootily, well, I, I, I sort of like the look of RuneQuest, but I couldn't stand the ducks, silly yeah, and th- this came up recently in a discussion of Tunnels and Trolls. That there were the Corgi paperback reprints in the late 80s, uh, which changed a bunch of the sillier spell names. And I'm sh- it was one of the ongoing complaints about people saying, well, Tunnels and Trolls is a silly game. Look, it's got this this uh, spell called Take That, You Fiend, and this other spell called Poor Baby. So they changed it. The Master was the one they really They didn't should. change that one. Uh they, yeah, they were that, trying to be serious, not, 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 not avoid offence. Uh, but, but the point is, I, mean, I, I, I remember the late 80s, there were lots of people talking about, you know, let, let us make our games dark and serious, and, and our games are important. They're not just games, they're role-playing experiences. You go, take this too far, you get vampire, obviously. Um, but I think that the ducks, 
And the, these are basically Donald Duck-style cartoon ducks. Yeah. Are one of the things that causes people who want to do that to RuneQuest to go, hang on a minute. And I can't help noticing that, at, le- at least in the core role-playing throughout the book, while they are mentioned in passing in a few places, uh, you, don't, you don't, for example, get told how you could play one or you know, much about what they're like. Uh, you, have to, you have to wait for the beast tree for yeah. uh, that. And, uh, and they are detailed. All right. In defense of ducks, um, the, the the ducks, yes, they are um, a joke, but they're a joke that improves by taking them perfectly seriously. Mm-hmm. The Baker Street Irregulars principle. Look at the world from the point of view of a people who are small, ridiculous-looking, fiercely proud, and fiercely independent. And capable not merely of biting your ankles off, but of sinking any ship that you might care to um, <laughs> sail into into their territory. They 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 essentially, uh, if you were look, taking them a hundred percent seriously, the ducks would be a high tragedy. But mm-hmm. but uh, but they 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 look they look they are they are ducks, and, and people want to make fun of them, and they resent this and. And I, I think that the Ducks present uh, an opportunity that no role player worthy of his salt should ever turn their backs on. And if, for goodness sake, there are <laughs> there are species in Garantha who are basically have one eye in the middle of their chest, uh, two extremely strong arms for pulling a, 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 a great bow. And a mi- another middle arm where their where their head should another middle hand where their head should be, so that they can pull on the string with it. There are people whose physical form is that of a large gold hoop. There are sentient um, tapirs who eat um, uh, non sentient humans. Uh, there are virgin unicorn riders. For God's sake. And you want to object to the ducks? <laughs> so, <laughs> I think it would be fair to say that of the various iterations of BRP, RuneQuest has always been the most complicated. It's the one that has hit locations, parries and dodges, uh, characteristic bonuses to skills, all that stuff. Five, le- five levels of success. Yeah, that, the resistance that, that, table and skill versus skill are both in here now. Yeah, I, uh, I uh, unifying the two would be would be the equivalence of fi- finding a grand unified theorem, but uh, but great honours uh, wait for somebody can pull it off. <laughs> I, I think I should also mention that the uh, that the fumble failure success um, special and critical. Even though it's something that's more complicated than than subsequent systems needed, by at least one step, has been very influential, and you find it in um, in GURPS in lots and lots. Oh, of I, lo- I love the success levels. What I don't love is the five by five matrix of well, if I got a success and you fumbled your parry. Oh no, hang on, you fumbled your dodge. That's a different table. 
Uh, is, yeah, that again has been sort of unified, but it's a table that you have to keep looking up. Yeah, it's been, so, it's been sort of unified for combat, and um, it could it could do with 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 simplification. Uh, I, I think it's I, fair to say this is broadly compatible with RuneQuest two and three. I mean, they've got some conversion notes, but you don't have to do any major rebasing, like like Call of Cthulhu editions one to six. You know, yeah, there, there are some changes, but they're not huge. The changes that are uh, the changes for the good are include the fact that they put in ratings for the rooms which you're you're carrying, mm, and that, that's the thing I love about this version because you know right at, right at the beginning of this you know the game is called RuneQuest. Well, tell me about runes and questing, and it they're sort of there, but then they're really not foregrounded yeah. in the earlier versions. But but here they're they're there and they're influencing what you can do and. Who you can be, um, the, your personality. Yeah, they, they uh, Pendragon style personality traits come into these. Yeah, but the the runes themselves are personality mm. influences. Well, that, that's the thing, as well as your passions, your loyalties, your loves and your hates. But if if and, you're wondering about something, then you might well decide. Well, I, I'm going to roll against my truth and delusion rune levels to, yeah. to see which way I'm I'm being tossed by the winds of fate at this particular moment. And it's a question of, if I hate the Lunars so much, can I ally with them for this one? Mm. Uh, or will I dishonourably? Honour is another consideration. Yeah, so they, they've, I think it would be fair to say they, they've made, they've unified the, the various ways of impassioning stuff in Pendragon a bit. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and, and it's it, a general, it, it, so you, you can also do things like, you know, I'm going to use this skill to assist this other skill, which is a thing that often comes up in games. And yeah. that 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 runs through the same broad mechanism, uh, but you can use your passions like you know I I hate chaos so I'm going so I'm going to be extra good at, at hitting this chaos beastie. Um, yeah, but but as in as in as in Pendragon, using passion, giving into passion, indulging in passion is is risky. Yeah, uh, and at, at least they have reduced it to just love again rather than also having lust and amour as Pendragon does, and I can never remember which one's which. <laughs> Uh, and there's there's also winter phase. It's the sacred time phase. It's there. Yeah. I, can I say that it also that is one of the points where I have been discovering the limits of New Chaosium's um, uh, proofreading and template oh. testing. Oh, it, 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 it's a horrible book from a proofreading point of view. It's a horrible book from a playtesting point of view. I'm sure that I am sure there's stuff there in there that. That, that has not been um, properly thought about, properly looked at. I, I would like to point out that if you have a word that does not appear in your spellcheck dictionary and you don't want it to be in your you know, permanent global spellcheck dictionary but you want it spelled right in this document, that is a problem that was solved by word processors in the 1980s. Uh, there is no I... excuse for calling somebody Calais Starbow and Calais Starbrow, which is their actual name. Hey. I look, uh, but there, there, the there's hand, a heading that is struck through rather than underlined. For for, <laughs> pecu like for peculiar re psychological reasons, I do not resent the, the the mistakes here, even though they cause my blood pressure to raise on a weekly basis, quite as much as I do the the untested nature of sorcery mm -hmm. and the unthought about the fact they didn't think about the implications of the way they'd written the sorcery rules. When they published it, um, still rankle. What, what? How long ago was it? Twenty, thirty years later. <laughs> so, um, so on the whole, I, I, I'm looking forward to this getting better. 
Mm -hmm. and, um, and I'm not convinced it's always going to be of the worst. If only because uh, Chaosium are, are going to want to uh, do revised editions in 10 years time and will improve on this well everybody, uh, everybody who created it is now safely dead so they can crank out revised editions forever without <laughs> a, without having to worry about people who actually care about it anymore i care about it i'm the one who's paying money yeah but you don't own the rights uh, thing, thing i did miss um yeah. and this this may well be available in different forms depending on how you buy it i believe there's now a starter kit but there is not only no starter adventure which is a fair thing to argue against in the core book uh, there isn't even a list of the sort of things adventurers do mm. yeah, what's happening out there what what are what are the things yeah you you've said we we can have a party from different homelands so what needs rootless people with strong backs and sharp blades what should they yeah. be doing? That that's completely missing from this really quite non-generic fantasy world, and I could yeah. really use that, frankly. Well, the, nowadays I would say that for people new, absolutely new to uh, Glorantha and to RuneQuest, that the starter uh, the starter set, which has beautiful new maps uh, and um, a good basic introduction to Glorantha, the a set of some beautifully produced pre-gen characters and a solo game set, set around uh, one of the battles um, of uh, of the of the early part of the uh, thing, uh, of the early part of the liberation of of, of Sartar and uh, and a set of um, of adventures set around the town of Johnstown. I would say that is uh, one of the best products I have seen for the... Mm -hmm. um, there's also uh, two books of adventures, The Smoking Ruin and The Pegasus Plateau, which are basically potpourris of stuff happening around um, uh, around Dragon Pass um, at the time period for the start of the game. Yeah, this is slightly different from, this is not Second Age, but it's slightly different from classic RuneQuest era, isn't it? Sorry, this is Third Age. Yeah, this is Third Age. It's As I said earlier, this is after where the Third Age adventures were set for RuneQuest 2 and yeah, 3. So, so you could, in theory, bring characters across, but probably you don't want to, is the impression I get. But characters who have lived uh, through the Years of the lunar oppression would uh, uh, would be uh, would be experienced adventurers and either dead or um, establishment figures. And indeed, these um, these books are full of people like Callias Starbrow or uh, Lake Queen Laker of the Colimar, who uh, who used to be uh, Chaosium uh, 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 House Campaign. Uh, characters, mm -hmm. uh, either NPCs or PCs, and they are they are there to be um, the experienced uh, older freedom fighters who now find themselves stuck with mm -hmm. having to actually um, bring the war to the Lunars. Yeah, and you've got the threat of uh, of Argrath in the background. I'm one of those people who does not love Prince Argrath. Um, <laughs> I do not believe in his in his in his propaganda. <laughs> but uh, but be but be this as it may, it looks as though the official version is going to feature him uh, triumphing uh, forward and defeating the Lunars as he does in White Bear Red Moon. Could I just check with you? Do, does classic era RuneQuest have both 
lance-wielding cavalry and charioteers. Yes, it okay. does. Okay. Sometimes working for the same organisation. It, 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 <laughs> at one stage, at one stage, um, you had uh, you had classic, you had uh, uh, feudal period, uh, fully armoured knights and um, Hittite um, uh, walled cities on the same continent. Somebody's been uh, playing too much DBA. Well. Nowadays, everything from the illustration and the policy point of view, lots of things have tended towards the Hindu mm -hmm. um, and, and the mystical. There's a lot of blue skinned uh, people uh, going around and red skinned people going around. Uh, and uh, and it's, all, it's all a bit, um, it, it, it's, it's all a bit 60s uh, hippiedom revisited which I don't object to in the slightest and certainly makes everything a lot more, a lot easier um, on the eyes than the Vikings uh, and the uh, and the Sumerians. That we uh, were the the, the thing which I was reminded of very much of was uh, comments you made uh, running Ars Magica, which is if you've got this kind of inconsistency deep in the background, then that's fine as long as you can ask ask the designers, ask the books what the answer is to something. But the moment you go outside that, you're, you're ill-equipped to extend those principles because you don't know what those principles are. Yeah, uh, I, I've got a much stronger sense of what's going on in Glorantha than I ever did with Ars Magica, mm -hmm. which is odd because Ars Magica is based in real medieval history um, to, to an immense extent. But real medieval history is an immensely dense and complicated structure. <laughs> and and, and Glorantha is, is based off the imaginings of a few enthusiastic people in the in the latter part of the twentieth century, and and all and 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 I and and the rule is uh, ever since Greg discovered this problem, the rule is your Glorantha may vary, mm -hmm. and that's the only way where you where you can do it. Uh, the the same way that Professor Barker came to the conclusion, your Tecumel is your Tecumel. And if there's a place that you want to go on Tecumel, which I haven't detailed, then please go there, and when you come back, tell me about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I've discovered things uh, playing with ducks, uh, I'm sorry, that sounds terrible, but if I've discovered things playing, playing with ducks and other obscure peoples, and I've contributed it to the, uh, to the general store of vanished knowledge, then I'm not at all ashamed of the fact. I I look forward to a much cleaned up version of <laughs> uh, of uh, request Glorantha. I, I but I'm also looking forward to the to the expansions. They're talking about uh, Robin Laws is has been working on a, uh, on, a on a new version of the of the Parvis material, and uh, Parvis is basically a huge excuse for dungeon crawling. A civilized city built on the outside of a ruined old time a city filled with uh, ruins and underground passages and and treasure and things of chaos and what have you. It's a it's a it's a, a role playing game cliche and immense fun. And there are other projects in the pipeline which we probably won't go into just now, except that I hope I have managed to communicate some of my enthusiasm for. 
the setting and for the system. From a commercial point of view, it clearly makes a bit of money, but it is not the huge moneymaker that Call of Cthulhu is. No. I uh, think but it, on the other hand, at least some of the people now at Moon Design started off as enthusiasts for it. I think I don't think you could. I don't think you could do uh, the gaming business without enthusiasm. Um, Call of Cthulhu has an immense uh, user base and fan base, and it has a back catalogue which continues to be easily updatable and reprintable, and and classic campaigns that can be brought up to date to the newest system and reissued at enormous expense mm. and considerable profit. Um, but RuneQuest has to be a, la a labour of love, is a labour of love, and bless it for being that. So, welcome to Dean. Uh, sorry, Mike couldn't make it, so I just have to do this myself. Uh, so, you, you've been publishing stuff for, let us say, Lovecraftian-related games for, for a while, I think. Yeah, no, I've I, I, um, been putting out uh, various things. Started out sort of just putting out free stuff probably about 10, 11 years ago. So, mm -hmm. sort of been uh, becoming more and more professional, I guess, in terms of the type of uh, way that I've been publishing stuff for... In, in recent years, I guess, but I've been mean, trying to be a bit more of a, a community creator in the sense that, you know, put out stuff that, uh, you know, it's a lot of it is free or easy to get from our, our website or mm. somehow sort of supports what people are doing. So, yeah, I mean, some publishers will say, here is the free thing, so you've got to buy our system. And I think even just looking at the stuff you've released as free, you could get a fair bit of play out of that without necessarily having to give you any money though obviously i would recommend that people do <laughs> <laughs> yeah no the the uh, the convicts and cthulhu stuff we did is a good example of that we've put out i think it's i think it, when i put it all together into a into a sort of a, a bundle i think it's like 500 pages of of content um, that you can get for free from our website that you know can play an entire campaign if you really were so inclined to do so mm -hmm. and so the thing that mike wants me to ask you uh is why are you publishing another Lovecraftian game? There are a lot out there already. <laughs> <laughs> there are, there are. So you're talking about Cthulhu Eternal, which yes. is a, a a game that we we sort of just earlier this month, I guess, put out. So um, it's interesting. Like, making a new game, I guess you're right. There are a lot out there, and um, and you know you can kind of say, well, why would you go about? creating more of these things because you know that the market is already there and well filled i think in our case um we're not really trying to say that we're you know claim that we're building a better mousetrap in the sense that you know our game is is sort of the the you know the absolute going to blow everybody away in terms of game mechanics and new new play styles i mean there are some cool things that we've done mm -hmm. Um, which you can talk about if you want but i think the the real reason that we went went into this whole endeavor i guess is to sort of help uh, lower the barrier of entry to creators that have sort of uh, unusual or original ideas that don't really fit into the easy models of publishing that are available for sort of D100 Lovecraftian games at the moment. So one of the things that we've sort of observed is lot, people pitch stuff to, to us all the time about what they want to do and, and gamers being what they are, you know, 99% of the time they're some off-the-wall kind of variation of something that's out there uh, mm -hmm. in terms of an established setting. So um, we've sort of tried to 
get some of those things released. But uh, one of the problems, I guess, is that you know, the publishing models that are that are out there obviously very strongly um, incentivize people to do or incentivize companies to release things that support product lines that they've already got in the market. And if you're a, a commercial publisher, I can kind of totally see why you would do that because sure. it's sort of, you know, you want you want more people playing in your setting or your, um, you know, your pre-existing thing. So, you know, if you could have something that's in a straight gaslight thing or a straight 1920s thing or a straight modern thing, it supports the sort of the games that are already out there. So absolutely fine with the, the idea that that's the way that most um, gaming companies want to, nudge things but if you're out there trying to do something weird and wonderful it's a bit hard to to find how to actually release that so what we sort of tried to do having been victims of that to some extent very much the case with the post-apocalyptic stuff that we did for Apocathula we we actually pitched that to um, a couple of publishers before we kind of embarked on this road because like making a new game system is a lot of work as sure. we discovered and you're giving it away <laughs> um, free so it's, it's, yeah. it's got to justify itself in those terms well that's right so w- before we actually went down that line we kind of looked at a lot of other different things we talked to a few different people and i think people like the idea as a niche kind of thing but again it's sort of like oh yeah okay well you know we've got a lot of things on our plate already putting out a brand new thing that's a completely you know different thing is a different type of game uh, we may not ever re- get our return on investment on that um so because we, we kind of faced that and we sort of were forced into this sort of position of saying, okay, well, if we can't easily get somebody that wants to do that for us, how could we go about um, without kind of just going back to first principles and redesigning a game system from scratch, which is an insane amount of work. Um, mm-hmm. What we did is we looked around and said, okay, well, you know, the OGL um, license has been out for a long time. Are there any D100 type games that have already been released under that license that we could kind of um, – use as a starting point to actually build something new so uh, we discovered that there are and um, the lovely people at uh, at arc dream were very kind when they put together their um, delta green role-playing game for example back in 2016 Mm -hmm. Uh, they're very keen to actually very um, nice in the sense they released all of their the the core game mechanics part the, the rules part of their game as uh as an ogl open content kind of thing so we could kind of take Bits of that and bits of other games that have also been released, like Legend, uh, Mongoose released back in some earlier date. Yeah, um, we've actually just been talking about RuneQuest in the other half of this episode, so yeah. There you go. (laughs) So because of those those things, I mean, you you can kind of get a lot of that kind of the the bare bones uh, of a of a system for free mm-hmm. um as as fully open content we kind of just took that and wrapped some new bones or flesh around those bones um and tried to build a a post-apocalyptic system so which is where the, the apocalypse came from and as soon as we did that and uh, people started um saying okay well so you've released an srd or like a version a free version of the the core parts of your Apocathulu, um game system. That's awesome, but we don't want to play a post-apocalyptic. We want to play modern day. We want to play this. <laughs> we want to play, you know, Napoleonic, or we want to play Elizabethan, or we want to play whatever. Um, and it's like, oh, okay, I guess that makes sense. Um, can we find a way to take the post-apocalyptic stuff out of it and make it a little bit more generic? And that really is what Cthulhu Eternal is. Yeah. Though at the same time, uh, you've released three separate uh, documents for the three, what you might call the classic eras, the Gaslight, Jazz Age, Modern Day. So one of the things when we first sat down to do that is to say, okay, well, 
it'd be awesome to be able to make a generic um, system that works for absolutely any type of game that anybody ever wants to play, like whether it's from Stone Age through to, you know, far future kind of stuff. That'd be great. But when you sit down to look at it, the um, the, the logic or the, the actual way of doing, of describing characters and their interactions with the world, it, it's really hard to do in a generic way that doesn't actually, uh, that it kind of is independent of the technology of the era or the setting of the era or the social structures in some cases of the era. So rather than try to do that and have a bunch of skills like, you know, do stuff or, you know, be nice to people or to fix problems or something like that, which would be so ridiculously generic as to be meaningless really we kind of just realized that actually we probably need to release this as a family of of independent you know things where we've got the same mechanics uh, or similar mechanics but they're kind of localized or you know uh, tailored to a particular setting so um, my, my personal interest is actually getting the um, the, the colonial one getting going so that I can re-release um, the the uh, convicts and Cthulhu stuff as a standalone system, but sure. when I put up a poll on our our blog of what what go, what's what eras would people really like us to do, <laughs> um, that was that wasn't what came up at the top of the list. It was <laughs> 1920s, modern age, Victorian. So we did those three first, but we actually we have others. It's probably uh, there'll be you know there, there may be you know many more to come. Yeah, I'm mean, I'm always remembering that. As far as Lovecraft was concerned, he was not writing period pieces. He was writing modern, cutting-edge science fiction. So that, that's, that's, that's the way true. my bias yeah. goes. But, yeah, obviously other people. <laughs> um, so let, let us say one, one of our listeners is, is hearing this and thinking, you know, I've got an idea for a Lovecraftian campaign setting. I want to use mm-hmm. this SRD. Um, how do they go about it? I mean, you've, you've released it as a PDF. So well, yep. they, they just stick it, stick it in their documents or yeah, so the um, the the OGL, I mean, if you, the Wizards OGL, when you look at it, um, it's actually remarkably uh, enabling in a way. It basically says uh, when you actually pick up one of these um, documents that's been released under the OGL, what creators have to do is they have to basically call out which things are up for grabs as open content so that's what's mm. called open gaming content and which things are um are not so that's that's product identity that's basically called so for our srds we've actually made pretty much everything um open content so it, absolutely everything that's in those pdfs apart from basically the the, the ability to call yourself Cthulhu Eternal, um, you know, you can't basically use that name without basically us saying, okay, yeah, that's all right for you to use it. Everything else, sure. all the other words that are in those documents, someone can basically do a copy-paste into their into their game or their campaign or whatever. So there's, there's sort of different ways that people could use that. I mean, one of them is, let's say, I just have an awesome idea for a campaign or a scenario that happens to be in one of the settings that we've already released an SRD for. What I'd suggest there is, okay, you know, if you if you want to do a little bit of world building around the outside, because the SRDs don't really have a lot of world stuff sure. in it, yeah. they're just the rules. But if you can actually say, right, well, I'm going to describe, you know, um, what Scotland in the 1920s was like and some of the horrors that I want to put into my scenario, I could actually just say, right, well, let's just make something that's compatible with the SRD. You know, it, it and in some ways that's sort of, I, I, we've just released a, a, um, a 1920s, scenario just as a kind of an example just recently and that kind of works that way it sort of says okay well 
it just it's playable with just the SRD. So it's just if you had those rules plus all the world stuff that's part of the scenario, you can basically run it. And, and if you should spe- happen to have you know adventures published by other companies that are using D100 type rules, I mean they, they might not go directly across, but I, but I would think it's not going to be a huge effort to make them compatible. No, and people have talked about that. There's a there's a a, um, a game currently running at the moment on, as a play by post online where where um, somebody's basically taken um, Beyond the Mountains of Madness, which is you know epic campaign, and is mm-hmm. actually translating it piece by piece across to actually work with Cthulhu Eternal as a, hey. a play by post kind of thing. So I'll be watching that very closely to see how that one goes because it's going to be like a an epic online game, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other end of the spectrum, though, is if you actually say, right, well, you know, uh, all of those SRDs out there, none of them really is what I want to do. I I have an idea for, let's say, I've got, you know, Victorian stuff is, is interesting, but what I really want is, you know, that era is fine, but what I really want to do is a Wild West American kind of game or something like that. Mm. We'd say, well, okay, you can still lift all the stuff that's in our SRD and then just add in your own thing and then release it as your own game. You basically can yeah. say, you know, this is Roger's awesome Wild West game or whatever. And, um, and I don't and necessarily have to say, go and get a copy of the SRD as well. I can I can just bring correct. that straight in as long as I tag it yep. as I got this from Dean. Yeah, so the the, OG, the way the OGL works is basically, you know, you can cut and paste and copy and paste bits all whatever you want mm-hmm. as long as you basically follow the terms of the license which, sure. when you yeah. which is what's in that bottom bottom of that uh, contract at the back which is really just acknowledging where it came from and keeping a um a kind of a is a sort of a, a family tree of where all of these things have come from in terms of what copyrighted uh, materials have OGL materials have kind of gone into this um yeah. into this whole mix of things that i'm publishing as long as you do those two things you can do whatever you want with the content including release it commercially so yeah because i I know that uh, one of the things people have complained about from other publishers is i can release stuff absolutely free but if i want to charge money for it the only contract available is for a big commercial scale publisher and if i just want to sell you know two dozen copies at conventions there isn't really an, an option for that so, yeah, no, that's, yeah. That's, defi- that's definitely true. And the same was uh, even more true with Kickstarter. There's actually, mm-hmm. if you wanted to do something on Kickstarter as, you know, I want, you know, my brand new Wild West game to be supported through that fundraising kind of mechanism, then um, there's lots and lots of hurdles to, um, from a licensing perspective, to do that with the current ways that things work for, for some of the publishers. So. So I think it would be fair probably to say that you're you're not saying to people throw away your existing rule books, but you, you, this is mostly a thing for authors, publishers to be able to say, I've got this thing that I can build on. This is this is asserted as free content. Yeah. So I, th- I think the way I look at this, if I if I was going to draw an analogy, uh, I'd probably say this is sort of like we wanted to want to be the the free and open open source software version of gaming. So mm-hmm. like if you think about what li- what Linux is to computing, oh this is very much <laughs> where I live, so <laughs> so you know back it, you could say okay well if you look at Windows and you look at Linux, what do they do? They both put Windows up on a screen and let us kind of you know move your mouse around and interact with documents and at a at, 
an abstract level, they both do the same thing. If mm-hmm. I'm a home brewer, though, and I would like to put together my own, you know, configurations of things and do awesome stuff with it, then, you know, I have a lot more freedom if I've actually got an open system because sure. I can you know, hack away and do different things. However, the, the other thing is that, you know, if someone comes along with an awesome, builds an awesome application on top of that, that, you know, that works on uh, on the open system, I can entirely see why people might say, you know, there's this thing that came out for Cthulhu Eternal. It's an awesome campaign. It's whatever. You know, there's a there's a reason to actually pick it up, even if you're just, you know, I, I like playing published scenarios. If someone mm. actually takes it and runs with it that kind of way. Well, presumably portability would go both ways. If someone wants to take that in one of the official games, then they can do that too. Well, I guess so, yeah. <laughs> well, why they'd want to, I've obviously no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've been uh, skimming through this. I, I'm not familiar with the uh, Delta Green uh, system, but I am particularly mm-hmm. like the way... I mean, this is a human-scale game. It always has been, really. But the the way you say, mm-hmm. okay, th- this weapon is just not a thing that is survivable when you get hit with it. So we go from mere points of damage to lethality because you know, mm. that's what actually matters. One of the great things, and this is really the, the Arc Dream guys need to take the credit for this more so than us, but uh, I think one of the, the awesome things about that that rule sort of engine is it just streamlines a whole bunch of stuff that is it kind of can bog down things in uh in in other games i think yeah um you know when you actually have you know well i've got i've got a you know uh an automatic firearm it's going to have like you know i I roll a whole bunch of dice each to each round and you know i have to keep track of all this stuff and we're you know and and in reality is if someone's actually going to go into some of those kind of combat situations the chances of a a mere mortal kind of surviving it are not particularly high even if it's like you know after all 60 10 kind of damage or something like that it's kind of it's it's pointless with with uh with people to some extent just slows the game down yeah and certainly i've i've met some very yeah, slow, I think, is the thing. Automatic fire, in, especially, is, is a culprit here, because if you've got a system that you designed for a single shot, and then mm. you suddenly got 20 shots, yeah. Yeah, and I think it makes total sense in games where sort of tactical simulation, and, you know, if I wanted to spend an entire night doing a firefight, you know, between, you know, one group and another group, but, like, Lovecraft games really typically don't hinge on that kind of t- uh, conflict, mm. so I think it just... It just adds overhead to you know to, to things unless you're really in, you know interested in that aspect to it. In which case, maybe the Lovecraft stuff isn't actually the thing that's driving you to be interested in this game in the first place. Yeah, I mean, he he's Lovecraft himself was clearly not interested in the wargamey side of things. I mean, he'll have a battle, but it's the good guys win or the bad guys win. More yeah, than, I mean, they're prob- yeah. Pro- probably the most the most Lovecraftian system out there is Cthulhu Dark. From that perspective, it's like <laughs> you, you lose. Know, if you get it, if, if you go into contact, you co- uh, combat with a with a, a supernatural thing, you die. So, mm-hmm. but it that that has some limitations from a story perspective. But it's, <laughs> but, it's you, know, you you don't get a lot of recurring heroes in Lovecraft. <laughs> well, that's true. That's true. So, what what's what's the current plan? I mean, the, this thing's coming out. I I, I hope we uh, spread manage to spread the word a bit. Um, what, that would what be great. To do yep. with it? So, there's lots of different things kind of in motion at the moment. So, um, one of the things that uh, well, we obviously want to try to make this a community kind of thing in the sense that if people want to do stuff with it. Um, we want to help people be able to do things with it. If that means we need to sort of put together websites and stuff to help 
um, people to actually, you know, get their their original creations and have a place for them to live. Mm-hmm. We're probably we're interested in looking at doing that, having libraries of things that people can kind of, even if it's just parts of games or original creations and things like that. Sort of, we'll probably try to get some of that stuff online. We're working on more. Uh, system reference documents for other eras is one that's not too far off for sort of um, the what we're calling the Cold War era, but it's sort mm-hmm. of pretty much everything from World War Two to um, to sort of you know 1990s ish. So basically, which, Cthulhu now when it first came out. Kind of. It's actually kind of. It's a bit frightening for me to think that most of my life is now living in what I'm calling a historical era. But yeah, it's, tell it's me about sort it. of true. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of true. It's sort of like um, you know the modern rules kind of break down a bit when you go back to sort of like Cold War era, just because of the types of stories that people. And, and if you go back to the 1950s and 1960s, and there's all sorts of other cool things you could do, um, mm. particularly I guess from the espionage kind of you know uh, perspective, but others as well so that probably be the next one we come out with but there's as I, as I mentioned at the beginning i'm also keen to get the colonial one and i've had interest from various other people to do um to do other other eras as well one of the things about um the current srds that is you know they are just rules there's there's, there's limitations in terms of yet yeah, it, it's it's you know the crunch to be able to run something but if you wanted to say okay what's what are the statistics for a uh, you know, uh, a, a deep one or a, a ghoul or something like that. They're mm-hmm. not currently in in the SRD. So, um, one of the things that we have been very interested in is keeping an eye on um, the Fatagen, um rule set, which the German um, yeah. Lovecraft Society guys put together a year or two ago in German. I'm very excited about the news that they uh, recently mentioned that they actually are going to translate that across to English this year. So, um, and because of the fact that they also derive from basically the same um, the same D100 DNA as us, uh, yeah. their their descriptions of all those things are largely compatible. So, I guess it's partnering with those guys to sort of say, well. We've got we've got a, a rules engine. There's a whole bunch of stuff around Lovecrafty mythosy stuff that will come out as free. They're they're also awesome in the sense that they those guys are really into the OGL and putting stuff up online for free as well. So, in terms of resources for people making games, those those two things will be sort of two halves of of a of a a puzzle to be able to say, well, yeah. I can pick. Pick rules from one, pick um, you know setting stuff and Lovecraft stuff from another, and you know just run with it. So yeah, lots so of things. Ju- just to clarify for listeners who aren't aware that there is a whole mess of legalities around Lovecraft and, and claims that go even further because yes, you know, some of these stories were yes he wrote it, but then it was edited by somebody else who lived a lot longer than he did. And there have certainly been some very broad claims being thrown about that then don't get defended in court because nobody can afford to challenge them. Uh, my understanding yeah, that's, is that's, the Fatagan guys have gone very carefully through and said, okay, this story is definitely asserted as public domain, and here is a thing that is in this story describing the monster, therefore we can use it. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. So they, they've been very uh, meticulous in their uh, analysis of it, which is why I'm, I'm quite happy to just take their work and, and sort of not rep- replicate that uh, research because it's mm. it's it's kind of it's kind of a it's in in itself it's kind of a um it's a useful thing to have out as a community resource. So these are the sure. things that you could probably use in your game or your scenario without having anybody tapping you on the shoulder and say you know this state of such and such a, an author wants to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, 
yeah, we, we we see this now with the Sherlock Holmes stuff as well. Most of the stories are out of copyright, but not all of them. And there have been claims that this particular aspect of Sherlock Holmes's character is something that only shows off in a late story. Therefore, you got to pay us. And yeah, yes, yeah. No, I've seen that as well. It's it's a, it's an interesting thing. But I mean, I I'm not against um, you know, authors getting paid for their for their original creations, obviously. But I think sometimes it goes a little bit over the top in the Lovecraft world and maybe maybe it's true in the in the um in the Sherlock Holmes Holmes world as well. But it's it's you know, even just sort of mentioning the name of a of a tome that turns up in a book, I guess has been asserted by a lot of people as being it's a derivative work, so you know you need to pay somebody for mentioning mm. the the you know I won't mention the name, but you know, <laughs> a book, <laughs> it, which which kind of feels like it's just, it's stretching the definition of a derivative work fairly far, but you know mm. Okay, well, I'm definitely going to be doing the material using this. I'm definitely looking forward to running it and uh, mm-hmm. hoping to uh, see more more in the same line. Is there anything else you want, you want to add? Or um, no, I, th- I think I mean that's that's as I say, I am I, very keen to for this to be a, a community resource in the sense that we're not here to make squillions of dollars out of this. I mean, we we we'll release a few commercial things, but that's just because we want to be able to put together some things that have got, you know, nice artwork and all those things, which we have to pay people for. But mm-hmm. I think we, um, we really want to see it being something that people use and find useful. So if people have feedback or, you know, have ideas for, for what, what they want to see or their own creations that they, they want to put out there in the, uh, in the sort of the, the public sphere for other people to pick up and use. I, that's the sort of thing we want to facilitate with this. So absolutely committed to try and support that kind of community of creators. Excellent. Thank you very much. Okay. Cheers. Thanks. That has been Improvised Radio Theatre with Dice. And if you'd like to tell us about the game system that makes your heart sing, or indeed any bits of Glorantha you might have explored that I haven't, uh, then you can contact us at... Uh, Leave a message on the website or email podcast at tekeli.ly. And we hope to see you again next month.